0: This is When Science Finds a Way, a podcast from Welcome about the science that's changing the world. We hear so much in the news about the health challenges humans are up against, climate change, the global mental health crisis, disease outbreaks, the list is endless. And it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by it all. To be honest, it's easy to switch off. But this is where science comes in. Because there are people working all around the world at the cutting edge of scientific research. They're coming up with creative, often revolutionary, solutions to our most pressing health challenges. And they're already having an impact at the local level with ideas that have global significance. Fascinating, right? I'm Alicia Wainwright, and now, I'm an actor living in Los Angeles, but in a previous life, I was one of those people doing science to try and understand the world better. I got my degree in botany and worked as a field researcher in labs from the Panama Canal to the state of Colorado. And speaking from this experience, I know science is most powerful when it's diverse. That means diversity of ideas and the kinds of people working on them. And that's what we'll be sharing with you here on When Science Finds a Way. You'll hear a truly global range of experts, scientists, researchers, people working at the forefront of scientific progress. And you'll hear from the people who have inspired and contributed to their work, people directly affected by the challenges we face. Sure, this stuff isn't easy, but there is hope. Science is helping to build a healthier future for all of us. Oh my, do we have a big one for you today? Antimicrobial resistance, AMR for short. It affects every single one of us on the planet. Yep, even you. It's so pervasive, some call it the silent pandemic. And it's so misunderstood that most of us don't even know it's happening. I'm not going to lie, when I first started doing research for this episode, I was genuinely horrified. People all over the world are dying from minor infections, infections that at a previous time could have been cured. And worse yet, it sounded like no one was trying to solve the problem. But before you rush and turn this off in despair, stick with me on this. The man you are about to hear from is a much needed ray of light. He's an engineer turned biotechnologist, and his company, the awesomely named Bugworks, is trying to do something huge that could literally change the world.
1: This is why AMR is shaking the foundations of our society, because it's like oxygen. You never speak about oxygen every day, but it keeps you and me alive.
0: You'll also be hearing an incredible personal story about how AMR can play out in real life.
2: But after five weeks, there was no improvement. I had to fight for my life.
0: It shocked me. It was inconceivable that this could be happening now, in 2023. And it made me realize how much I did not know or had misunderstood. So buckle up. It's a bumpy ride, but I promise it's worth it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Anand Anand Kumar. But don't tell him I called him that. He prefers Anand. I started by asking him to give us an elevator pitch. What is AMR?
1: Alicia, the simplest way of putting this is when existing antibiotics, antivirals and antifungals stop working because the bugs have simply mutated and have changed from what we believe them to be, that is antimicrobial resistance. When the organism is able to resist the very treatment that is supposed to kill it. That's basically AMR. And it's in the news today because we are losing the few antibiotics and antivirus that we have with us. And we have seen what COVID can do to damage lives and livelihoods. And we had that wake-up call and several other wake-up calls waiting to happen. So AMR is in vogue, unfortunately, and in the news because of what we have as humans done, which has caused these bugs to also become smarter and adapt faster.
0: Ooh, what we as humans have done, that sounds very ominous. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but just before we do, can you start by giving me a sense of the breadth and scale of the problem? To make
1: matters simple, let's focus on antibacterials because Alicia, today when people say AMR, They're specifically talking about bacteria that causes everything from urinary tract infection to abdominal infection to pneumonia to neonatal sepsis, head-to-toe infections. Typically, people are talking about antibacterial issues. The scale is staggering. A report that came out in February 2022 said that 5 million deaths are attributable owing to AMR, antibacterial AMR of which 1.5 million or so is directly caused by AMR. These numbers are growing by the year. Unfortunately, certain low- to medium-income countries face a brunt of this problem, and it's everywhere because bugs have no passports. So a problem picked up in India or South Africa can can show up in Glendale or Montrose, Los Angeles by a single flight. So this is a huge problem, and... A silent pandemic is just about to play on us.
0: Okay, I'm trying to be calm, but you're kind of reminding me of when I first learned about climate change and global warming. It's this sort of looming uh, sort of monster in the distance that you can't quite grasp. So I just want to know, how did we get here?
1: So if you go back in time, 1920s, about 100 years ago, Alicia, that's when penicillin was found. We only have a 100-year history with antibiotics. And as and when new antibiotics started happening, bacteria started developing intelligence, evolutionary intelligence and resistance to these antibiotics. Number two, antibiotics is not a very remunerative area compared to cancer or cardiovascular or diabetes. So there's less innovation happening, lower pricing. People are just not interested in the space. So look at the perfect storm we have created. A globally mobile audience, Massive use and abuse of antibiotics, no innovation.
0: With the, with the massive use, when they first created antibiotics, did they know that there wasn't an, an opportunity for there to be resistance in the bacteria?
1: Alexander Fleming, who won the Nobel Prize for inventing antibiotics, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech said, yeah, while you're appreciating my work, I'm sorry to tell you, that bugs are smarter than us. They've had millions of years of evolution. They're going to pick up. Please use penicillin with care. Don't abuse it. Alexander Fleming said this in the 1940s, if I'm not mistaken. So we knew it. Mm. But the rate of resistance pickup is happening much faster than it happened in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, because we're using billions and billions of antibiotics for humans. We're using billions of antibiotics for cattle, for the meat industry and climate change exacerbates this problem. So in the last 30 years, we have exacerbated something that was always there, but has become much worse very quickly.
0: Okay, so it's in our healthcare system, it's how we keep our animals, it's how we farm, it's our environment, it's everything, basically.
1: Exactly right, which is why AMR is like a climate problem, and it's called a One Health issue, because it impacts humans, animals and environment in a very tight loop.
0: And I'm keen to know your personal relationship with this issue, and India is a hot spot for AMR. So I'm curious, how did it come up in your family when you were growing up? Was your family one to kind of just immediately go to the doctor for antibiotics?
1: My father was a very famous doctor in India. He practiced for 53 years before he passed away. He's a very vaulted physician. And he treated tuberculosis for many decades. So I grew up in a family that's filled with doctors. And I used to have lines of patients around my house with TB. And then in the 1980s, it was my father who attended the first HIV patient in India. So the family has a history with infection. I grew up knowing to treat antibiotics with great care never to take antibiotics without my father's prescription to always complete a full course of antibiotic never to split the tablet into two so i wow. think but i was an engineer right i'm not a you even were a born
0: to do this you were I was born to exactly do
1: this exactly And remember i'm an i'm an engineer i'm not a doctor i'm not a scientist it's in my 90 in my late 40s that i i understood the purpose of my life and changed from engineering into biotech but it looks like the subconscious in me took over in my late 40s to want to do an antibacterial company.
0: Right. Okay. So you are totally immersed in the field of AMR, but you know, what about everyone else? Do you think that people really understand the scale of the problem?
1: AMR is just like climate. We know it's out there. There's no one owner for it. It's caused by multiple problems, right? Now, in the last two to three years, we realize that it can completely shake humanity. So slowly, we are waking up to this reality. Unlike climate, AMR, you don't see it. It's quietly happening in our cities, quietly happening in the suburbs, quietly happening all over the world. And by the time we wake up to this reality, it may be too late.
0: So... I guess just to ask the question in a different way, because I'm curious, like when you meet people and, and I don't know how often you're bringing up AMR at the dinner table, are you noticing clear misconceptions uh, from the general public?
1: Yes, I do. Because there is no appreciation of the difference between antiviral and antibacterial. It all starts from there. Even in the United States, a very large percentage of antibiotic use are for Infections that are not caused by bacteria. Antibiotics can only work when you have proof that the infection is directly related to a bacteria that has caused it, right? You do a sensitivity analysis and you say bug A or bug C has caused it and this antibiotic should work on bug A or C, you prescribe it. In many cases, we don't go and do a diagnostic test and we start using an antibiotic. Each time you use an antibiotic when it's not needed, You're perpetuating AMR.
0: Okay, hold that thought, because we wanted to put this into real-life context. We're going to hear John's story. He's a veterinary surgeon from Kenya, so he definitely has a higher-than-average knowledge of AMR. Back in 2020, he had a nasty fall in the shower. He had to have surgery to insert some metal plates to heal the break. But that was the beginning of an even more horrible journey with AMR. Mm
2: After I had the operation, the surgical wound continued swelling and it started uh, discharging uh, despite uh, me using the prescribed antibiotics uh, during that time. And it got so bad that uh, it triggered off uh, high blood sugar. And this actually drove me into into a semi-coma. And then I had to undergo another surgery to remove the metal plates because the infection had gotten into the blood, uh, had become uh, what you call septicemic. One time I called my wife aside and I told her the way I'm feeling now, I think I've reached the end. Please take care of yourself, take care of the family. Uh, Probably uh, we'll meet again (laughs) in heaven. Uh, I never got better. The COVID-19 infection that came during that time did not make things any better. (laughs) I had to fight for my life. And uh, then after five months in hospital, I was released to go home. uh, Still very dilapidated and uh, debilitated, uh, very weak. I could hardly stand. I had to be helped uh, to bed, to the wheelchair. Actually, when I was released from hospital, the wound dresser, came home with me and he visited me uh, twice a week and did the uh, dressing of the wound. But after five weeks, there was no improvement. And uh, when I thought about it is when I decided to do a culture and sensitivity testing and get the results for myself and get to know what is going on. Thank God I had a background in uh, pharmacology, toxicology and medicine. I got the results and that showed an organism that was causing the problem, a bacteria called Citrobacter. 18 antibiotics had been tested on it. And only one antibiotic called amikacin was working. And so I went ahead and uh, had uh, amikacin administered for five days. And after about uh, three weeks, the wound started drying up. And that is how I recovered. My hospital bill came to around thirty-five thousand US dollars. I spent another ten thousand dollars at home, and then the drug that was working costed uh, less than, maybe fifty dollars. It was less than fifty dollars. Following the surgical maneuvers and uh, the problems I had in hospital, my leg is now uh, three inches shorter and actually registered with the Kenya government as a person living with a permanent disability. Uh, This, to me, was unthinkable before, but I'm having to cope with it, and I'm having to prefer to live with it rather than have other surgical manoeuvres done and expose me to another round of antimicrobial resistance and sickness and recovery and complications that may come with it.
0: I cannot believe that if he hadn't thought to do a sensitivity test, he could have been one of those millions of people that succumbed to AMR.
1: Absolutely. It's an incredible story, very moving. And this type of story can now happen anytime, anywhere. It can be China, it can be India, it can be the United States, it can be the UK. Uh, you know, seriously, bugs have no borders. Number two, the gentleman spoke about doing a sensitivity analysis and one of the drugs, amikassian, was sensitive. Guess what? It's produced only by a handful of companies all over the world because it's not a regularly used drug. So you somehow have to pray and hope that the supply chain of these rare drugs are available in your country. So this is really, really scary. And the third thing is the entire modern medicine, surgery oncology, chemotherapy, hip replacements are all based on antibiotics working successfully. The best surgeons on the world will do their job and when she or he is gone, a patient may pick up an infection that's untreatable. This is why AMR is shaking the foundations of our society because we depend on it. It's like oxygen. You never speak about oxygen every day, but it keeps you and me alive. It's antibiotics that keep the edifice of modern medicine going. And that very edifice is cracking.
0: And to your point, do you think that the antibiotic amikacin would even work today for him if he had the same situation?
1: Don't know. In many parts of India, amikacin is completely useless. So in fact, I'm pleasantly surprised it worked for the gentleman and I'm happy it did. But the similar infection in his neighborhood may not work for amikacin because it's so personalized and the bugs are mutating so quickly Uh, So the answer is, you don't know.
0: Something he said at the very end kind of upset me too, because he was basically not wanting to do further corrective surgery, which would benefit his own health in order to potentially, you know, remove the option of getting another infection.
1: Yeah. So there are many parts of the world today where unless it's absolutely necessary, they don't want to do a surgery because they're worried about post-surgical infection. Can you believe this? In 2023, I'm making this comment, uh, and this is starting to increasingly, from parts of the world where I come from, they're really worried. And for your audience, I must also let you all know that 20% of all people who die post-cancer therapy, post-chemotherapy, are not dying because of the cancer, but are dying because of infection that they pick up post-chemotherapy. Because when you have an oncology treatment or a diabetes treatment or a rheumatoid arthritis treatment, your immune systems are suppressed. Perfect environment for bacteria to get in.
0: Wow, I did not know that. That is a very sobering thought. But before we get too depressed, uh, there is important work being done around the world to try and prevent the ordeal that people like John went through. This is Kakamega Hospital in Kenya. Alongside a handful of other hospitals in Ghana, Malawi, and Uganda, it has been part of a surveillance project since 2020, which is aiming to better understand the burden of antimicrobial resistance on patients living in low- and middle-income countries. It's called, and this is an acronym, S-P-I-D-A-A-R. Speeder, spider, spider pick your poison. It's short for Surveillance Partnership to Improve Data for Action on Antimicrobial Resistance. Did you get that? Okay, great. Samples from sick patients are sent off for sensitivity testing, and the data is analyzed and shared across the four countries. As well as providing big picture data on resistance patterns in the region— it's also proving to be a game-changer when treating patients. We caught up with Bernard, an infectious disease pharmacist, in the hospital to find out more about how the project has changed his work.
3: Since the SPIDA project started, so much has changed. The level of understanding of antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial stewardship has really gone up we are now able to carry out a number of tests that support the doctors to be able to make clinical decisions. And this is not just in terms of doctors and the other healthcare workers. Even the patients, they are happy because we are able to make timely interventions and be able to give the right or appropriate antibiotic. We had a, a baby in newborn unit who fevers were just going up despite the fact that they were on very good antibiotics. So we struggled, and eventually we got some blood. We took to the lab. Uh, we were able to do culture. And actually, it was a mixed growth. So what we did, we were able to introduce uh, new antibiotics to this uh, newborn. And actually, the baby responded. That eventually, they came out of the newborn unit. So it was a big thing. Uh, Remember, she spent a lot of time, more than three months, in the newborn unit. So the mother was so happy. So that's a case that uh, I think it's, it taught us a lot because there are sometimes there are some bacteria we feel that just normal flora, they don't cause any infection, but you will have to interpret results in relation to the state of the patient. So we believe we are making a difference. Previously, you come to work, and you don't have the tools to support you, be able to do what you learned in college. So it used to be very frustrating, very, very frustrating. But because we are able to adequately diagnose, then you wake up in the morning, at least you have the passion to go to work, because you know you will make a difference in someone's life.
0: Oh, wow. What what gets me about that is kind of going to the point of doctors doing their work and then letting the rest of the system sort of play out. And if your patients keep dying from uh, antibiotic-resistant infections, your work, how do you get up and go to work every day if you know that your patients are dying from this? Th-
1: that's right. You, you may be the most talented doctor, clinician or surgi- surgeon, But uh, a resistant bacterial infection is out of your hand if you don't have the tools to deal with it, right?
0: Right, of course. But what gives me hope uh, is to see that positive change is happening with research projects like this. And actually, you know, Bernard told us that alongside improving their antimicrobial stewardship in the hospital, one of the big learnings for the whole team was around basic hygiene standards that needed to improve, which which is another really important AMR prevention tool.
1: So if you look at some of the best returns we have had in the last 10 years with spending least amount of money, it's in wash, water and sanitation, hygiene. Again, COVID taught us that using masks, sanitizing our hands, et cetera, did a lot to prevent even worse COVID spread. So most hospitals, if you look at in India, in Africa, Southeast Asia, LATAM, the hospital's, are much better. The last 10 years, we've made significant progress. Is there room for improvement? You bet. There's plenty of room for improvement, but we have come a long way. And we find that hospital-acquired infection can be somewhat contained by simply following good hand hygiene. Because in hospital-acquired infection, one patient is not infecting the other patient. The patient's bugs are carried by the nurse or the doctor or the caretaker who touch that surface or the patient herself or himself, and then move on to the next patient or the surface that the next patient touches. So it's these healthcare workers that are spreading the hospital acquired infection.
0: Wow, that's reassuring because I feel like it's something everybody can do. Mm,
1: Absolutely. (laughs)
0: So we've looked at some of the ways we can slow down the advance of AMR, but now the big question, what happens if we run out of antibiotics? I mean, are we going to go back to pre penicillin era where people were dying from something as simple as scratch?
1: So I'm going to be very careful how I answer this because people may think that since I work in the area uh, that we may be potentially exaggerating. So I'll pull back. I'll be careful, but I'll state the fact if The pipeline of how we're creating new antibiotics, antibacterials, does not improve and improve quickly. I'm afraid we will be left to deal with last resort situations. That means patient comes in, he or she has pricked their hand or a small surgical incision, picked up an infection, and the antibiotics available in that hospital are not enough to treat the bug. This pandemic is a silent pandemic. COVID was not a silent pandemic. It's in your face, massive spread, spikes and come out quickly, etc. AMR spreads quietly. In fact, many deaths in the hospitals don't even get recorded as an AMR death. They'd say kidney failure or cardiovascular failure. Therefore, the numbers you're hearing are grossly undercounted. So if we don't do serious things about saving existing antibiotics and investing in a new generation of antibiotics and treating it like a medical infrastructure, not as a business, we will move to a pre penicillin era. And then, even if you came and gave me a billion dollars, two billion, three billion, I can't produce an antibiotic overnight. It takes 10 to 12 years at a minimum to do an antibiotic, if at all you're successful, and a billion dollars. Which pharma company wants to spend a billion dollars and then tell you, Alicia... Don't use my drug. Keep it carefully (laughs) under lock and key. And when the doctor says it's a tough case, only for that case when you've proven it through a sensitivity analysis, use my antibiotic. Makes no sense from a business perspective.
0: Mm. So in short, you know, You'd have to be crazy to take this on. And that's where you come in. (laughs) Your company is one of only a handful globally that's attempting to come up with a broad spectrum antibiotic. antibiotics. So please, please, please tell us more.
1: So BugWorks, um, I hope you like the name. It's a cool name. Initially, my my scientists thought it's like, what is this, like a cartoon character, but now it's caught on. (laughs) BugWorks was started 10 years ago. Uh, I spun this company out of my previous company called CellWorks. And 10 years ago, we started seeing the writing on the wall, sitting in India. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I sit in India. And we started seeing too many people dying, babies dying of neonatal sepsis. No pharmaceutical company showing interest. And we said, hmm, what if we can put a company together that creates a completely new generation of broad spectrum? We're trying to invent the first novel broad spectrum antibiotic since the 1960s. I was born in the 1960s. The last novel class was called fluoroquinolones. And since then, that's not been a, a, a completely novel class of broad spectrum.
0: For someone who doesn't know, in the simplest term, what is a broad spectrum antibiotic?
1: A broad spectrum antibiotic is one that hits a target in a bacteria and that target is preserved across many bacteria. So it, a single shot or a single drug Like the fluoroquinolones, it can help you for multiple infections. Therefore, our solution can potentially work on many infections. That's called a broad spectrum. Uh, Typically, you don't use a broad spectrum for everything. You use it for bad patients when you're not sure what the hell is going on patient is going down quickly, you need a broad solution because you think it's multiple bacteria causing problems. So let's
0: just kill everything. Kill everything, (laughs) stabilize
1: the patient in two days, three days, and then move to a step down Mm -hmm. treatment, Mm -hmm. right? So you need a step down, but first you need to start here. So our broad spectrum works on a whole host of organisms that cause from meningitis to skin infections, to urinary tract infection, to pneumonia, to uh, abdominal infection. sexually transmitted diseases, cystic fibrosis, which is a big problem in the United States, UK, for Caucasian population. And we also work on bacteria that causes bioterrorism. So we have an application in public health and we have an application in biodefense. Like anthrax? Like anthrax, like bubonic plague, and many more things I can't speak about (laughs) (laughs) that are either naturally occurring or potentially engineered by... Some operators, we won't speak about where they could come from. So we are potentially, not, we, are the, we are not the only company, but a handful of companies working on a single-stop solution for public health and biodefense.
0: Jeez, okay, wow. So just a small aim for your company then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, how close are you to actually making this a reality?
1: We have cracked the superbug in preclinical. That means our novel antibiotic is entering these superbugs, hitting these superbugs in new targets, novel targets, and causing quick death to these bacteria so that they can't mutate that quickly. Bacteria will defeat us, but a new asset like ours could give a 25-30 year period for humanity to figure out other solutions. Never permanent but you give adequate time.
0: Because it's constantly evolving. Evolving, right? And
1: much more intelligent than us. Much more intelligent than us. We have completed our preclinical studies and phase one clinical trials are running in Australia. Vicious luck. Because if our phase (laughs) one succeeds this year, we have a big-to asset for humanity. It has been tested on 10,000 superbugs across the universe and it seems to have a fantastic efficacy. But I cannot claim success Until we complete the early clinical trials and know that the safety of the product is adequate,
0: but you're hopeful. You're hopeful. Hopeful, and the early
1: signs that we are seeing show that this thing, the risk to reward equation, is very much in our favor.
0: Hmm. Wow, that is broad spectrum. (laughs) That's that's truly fascinating. And okay, so if. The business case isn't there for developing these broad-spectrum antibiotics. What should governments and the scientific community be doing to stop the globe from getting to the point of no return?
1: Since the return on investment is so poor in antibiotics, because there's no volume, governments are starting to look at antibiotics like defense infrastructure. When you have that warship that's parked near Los Angeles in a port, You really don't care about how many times you're using it. In fact, you hope you never use it. But it's there for you. And your tax dollars have somehow funded the Department of Defense to put that warship there. Correct?
0: Yeah, that's a really smart (laughs) analogy.
1: If you have a fire extinguisher in your house, I pray and hope nobody ever has to use one. But if a bad... Occurrence happens, you have a fire extinguisher, but you still pay for it, you pay for your fire insurance, you keep it, and we pray and hope you never use it. So people are thinking about an antibiotics like fire insurance or a defense insurance and say, don't treat it like a cholesterol drug. Don't treat it like a blood pressure drug where you can sell by hundreds of millions, right? Keep it. So society is able to go on with its medical practice. Don't worry about volume. So they're decoupling volume from value, and the United States and the UK are leading this discussion by saying, "Let's put money on the table." So, if a company is able to crack the superbug and get a drug that works for your public, we will keep it under lock and key.
0: <laughs> and your warships. And your warships,
1: <laughs> right? And you never look at how many uh, bombs were ever fired from that uh, from that stealth fighter. So, unless antibiotics are treated like a global infrastructure that becomes a very lifeline of modern medicine. This space is game over.
0: Well, if anyone else that's listening feels like how I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little stressed. I don't love the idea that not enough is being done to curb this incredibly important global issue. So... I need you to give me a pep talk. What can I be looking forward to? How can I feel better about this?
1: Lots of good things have happened in the last four to five years because we were in such a desperate situation. I want to appreciate the Department of Health and Human Services of the United States, the Wellcome Trust, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, WHO, etc., for putting some money on the table to fund what I'd like to call as push incentives. That means you're pushing innovation, small struggling companies like mine get some grants to work on science. This wasn't the case five, six years ago. So good news for the audience is there is hope. Point number two, grants are slowly starting to creep up to fund clinical development, which is the expensive part. Here again, governments like the US, UK, Australia, Canada, etc. are doing a lot of work. Governments are also starting to write laws. They want to pass laws that are going to put some money on the table to say, please support companies doing innovation in antibacterial so they can stay alive with the lights on. So I see lots of things happening which give me hope. If the business side of things does not get fixed in anti-infectives, we will still have a problem, but I see some change coming. And the next time we meet, I hope to give you even more better updates. But it's not hopeless.
0: Okay. And if you have hope and you're on the front lines, then I have hope. And I'm also wondering in my day-to-day life, what can I do to help the situation, if anything? Yes,
1: you can. As they say, a journey of thousand miles begins with the first step. You fall sick, you're feeling sick, you're having a fever. Please don't take an antibiotic un- unless your doctor asks you to do it and you have a proven bacterial infection. Basic hand hygiene
0: Wash your hands. Wash your your hands. hands. (laughs) And the basic
1: discipline goes a long way in 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 preventing the spread of AMR. If possible, if possible, please buy meat, chicken, etc., that is certified not to be treated with antibiotics. In the developed parts of the world, the biggest culprit of AMR is the use of antibiotics in your protein. In the developing parts of the world, it's easy access and use and abuse by humans that's causing it. So it's very interesting. In one part of the world, it's humans just popping antibiotics just like, you know, chocolates. In one part of the world, it's your craze for animal protein and the food chain that's exacerbating this problem.
0: Well, Anand, you are making your mark on the world and I look forward to seeing what the clinical trials will reveal and hopefully your broad spectrum antibiotic will save many, many, many lives.
1: Thank you so much, Alicia. I thank you and the Welcome Trust.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of When Science Finds a Way. And thanks to Dr. Anand Anand Kumar and our contributors, John Karayuki and Bernard Wanyama. I know AMR sounds scary, but it does give me hope that people like Anand and Bernard are working on it. When Science Finds a Way is brought to you by Welcome. If you visit their website, welcome.org, with two L's, you'll find a whole host of information about AMR, as well as full transcripts of all of our episodes. Make sure you follow us in your podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they come out. And if you feel like you learned something important or interesting, or you just want to support the podcast, spread the word and share it with people you know. Next time, we'll be hearing how research into new family forms has transformed the quality of life for same-sex parents and their children. When Science Finds a Way is a Chalk and Blade production for Welcome a global charitable foundation that supports science to solve the urgent health issues facing everyone.